Right now in the Vatican gallery hangs Raphael's last painting, which some think is his greatest painting. And the painting is entitled The Transfiguration. Now the uppermost part of the painting, it pictures Christ in all of his glory with Moses on his left and Elijah on his right. On the next level down are the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, shielding their eyes from the blinding glory of Jesus. Then on the ground level of the painting is a poor, demon-possessed boy. His mouth hideously gaped open, and his father standing by his side. Raphael brilliantly captures something of the overwhelming contrast between the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration and the troubled world waiting below. Last week we saw Peter, James, and John bask in the light of the Transfiguration. But today we will see them descend into the darkness of demonization. We come now to Mark chapter 9. And this week's text is verses 14 through 29. 14 through 29. Verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus... They were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. 
The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for this incredible story. And thank you most of all for your son. Thank you for his tender heart and his infinite power to overcome the darkness. And so we ask, Father, that the spirit of your son would move in our hearts right now. As we let these words sink deeply into our souls. Father, please help us not go through the motions today. Please. But help us to worship. Help us to bask in the love and the power of Jesus. And be changed from the inside out. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So as believers, as Christians, we know that God has supreme power over all things. We know that. We believe that. We know that he has supreme power over all things, including all of the forces of hell and darkness. But the question becomes, how do you and I access that power? How do we access it? Well, this story shows us how shows us how let me summarize the story quickly for you the disciples are trying to exercise a demon out of a boy and they are unsuccessful and do you know what the last verse here tells us verse 29 it says that incredibly <laughs> incredibly the disciples tried to drive the demon out without praying How amazingly arrogant. How clueless they are to their own inadequacy. So you have that group. You have the disciples, the arrogant disciples trying to drive the demon out without prayer. And then you have another group there. Verse 14, we see the teachers of the law were there. And they were arguing with the disciples, pontificating with them and showing them all the things they did wrong in the exorcism. No, we have the answers. Listen to us. We'll show you how to do a proper exorcism. You guys don't know what you're doing. So you have those two groups in the story. And then you have another figure in the story. One that acknowledges his own weakness. Just one person here who has a single ounce of humility about him. And who is that? It's the boy's father. It's the boy's father. 
in one of the most important dialogues in all the Bible. In all the Bible. The Father here begs Jesus to heal his son. And how does Jesus respond? He says, I can, if you believe. And then what does the Father say? And one of the most amazing responses to Jesus in the Gospels, he says, I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying so hard to believe. And part of me does. Part of me does believe. But another part of me is riddled with doubts. How could a good God let this happen to my son? How could a good God let my son go down this path? I don't know. So Lord, I, I'm trying to believe. But please, help me. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And immediately, immediately, Jesus heals the boy. So, what do we learn here about accessing God's power? Number one in your outline. We learn that helplessness, not holiness, is the first step. Helplessness, not holiness, is the first step. The father comes to Jesus with his doubts. And Jesus does not get all puffed up and say, Oh, well, don't you know who I am? I'm God in the flesh. How dare you come to me with your doubts? Go and purify your heart. Build up your faith. Get rid of all your doubts. Get you a better accountability partner. And then, then maybe I can do something about your son. But you've got to get rid of all these doubts. Is that what Jesus says? No. That's not how our Jesus works. You see, true faith, true faith does not approach God by saying, I am faithful, Lord. Now bless me. I've been so good. Now you owe me. No. True faith approaches God by saying, I am not faithful, Lord. But you are. You are. And I do not come to you on the basis of my goodness. I come to you on the basis of your goodness. I am not good, but you, you are good. That's true faith. And that's exactly what the Father does in our story. He freely admits his own weaknesses. And Jesus is showing us that when you approach him with humility, with empty hands, 
What does the, the hymn say? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. When you come to him with empty hands, a humility, his power is released in your life. But as soon as you come to him thinking that you have something to offer, or thinking that you have a one-up on him, or thinking that he owes you for your church attendance, for your tithing, for your good moral record, then his power is cut off in your life. Now, this makes Christianity wildly unique. <laughs> wildly unique. You see, in all other religions, you bring God your good record of obedience. Okay? And then God owes you. He owes you a blessing. He owes you salvation. Okay? But Christianity says that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then and only then will God give you, a sinner, the perfect righteousness of Christ. It is not based on anything that you have done. You receive a perfect record of righteousness by grace, through faith in Christ, period. And now, this is hard to believe, I get it. <laughs> That's why we're here this morning. We're here to hear the promises. These unbelievable promises. But here's what that means. By grace, through faith, in Christ, now all of the blessings of Jesus' kingdom are yours. They're all yours. I get it. That's hard to believe. <laughs> but it's true. If you don't believe me, go home this afternoon and read Ephesians chapter 1. Read Ephesians chapter 1. And see all of the things, all of the blessings that the Father showers on us. Those who believe in His Son. It's unbelievable. This, folks, is great news. Is <laughs> great news. You see, because I don't really have that good of a record to offer. In the first place. <laughs> I don't have a very good record to offer. And if you're being honest, neither do you. And so if, if God's power is only available to us, if we've been good this week, if we've gone to church, if we've put some money in the plate, if we've checked our religious boxes, we've had a quiet time with the Lord, we've read our Bible, if we're nice to our neighbor and wave when we come home. If God's power is only available to us in those moments, we will have none of God's power. We'll have none of it. But do you see how ridiculously great this is? 
that all of his power is available to us by grace through faith alone. This is unbelievable. You and I need not think that we're hypocrites because, of, because our obedience is weak and imperfect. We don't have to walk around like we're less than when we fall short. Jesus is not looking for perfection. He's looking for humility. He's just looking for people to admit that fact. <laughs> just to say, hey, I blew it this week. I blew it. <laughs> Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am a sinner. That's what he's looking for. In the famous parable of the tax collector's prayer versus the Pharisee's prayer in the temple, the Pharisee stood up and he said, Oh, my God, I thank you so much that I am so awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Man, whoo, thank you so much that I'm not like that dirty, rotten, scumbag tax collector over there. Thank you, thank you, Lord. Whoo, thank you that I do all the right things, that I go to church, I pay my tithe. Whoo, I'm awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And then Jesus said that the tax collector couldn't even look up to heaven. He couldn't even look to heaven. He bowed his head and he beat his chest. And he said, Lord, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus said, only one of those men went home justified that day. Who was it? It was the tax collector. The tax collector was his guy, not the Pharisee. You see, and this is what the disciples lacked here in our story today. They were so arrogant, so confident in their own abilities, they didn't even think to pray when exercising a demon. But ironically, that's the whole purpose of prayer. That's the whole purpose. Prayer puts us in our rightful place and puts God in his rightful place. A.W. Pink said this, he said, The prayerless soul is a proud one. For his refusal to receive strength from God is equal to saying that he can get along through the day without him. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He said, With respect to God, Prayer is but a sensible acknowledgement of our dependence on Him to His glory. It is a suitable acknowledgement of our dependence on the power and mercy of God for that which we need, and but a suitable honor paid to the great author and fountain of all good. And did you know that every time Charles Spurgeon the prince of preachers entered the pulpit. He would pray the short prayer of the tax collector. Before he said the first word of his sermon, he prayed, Lord, have mercy on me, 
for I'm a sinner. So, step one, we approach God with helpless humility in prayer. We come with nothing in our hands. We come at His mercy. Number two in your outline. Trust Jesus in your suffering. Trust Jesus in your suffering. Now, this father in our story today, he may have had other children. We don't know that. You know, the text doesn't say. But we do know that at this very moment, if you've ever had a child who's in trouble, you know this to be true. Even if he had 10 other children, the most important thing in this father's life right now is this son. It's the most important thing. This son who is terrorized by evil. So this child has shot straight to the top of this father's priority list because he's suffering. And the father does the best thing possible. He gives his son to Jesus. He gives his son to Jesus. That's the best thing he could do. And what does Jesus do? Well, apparently, he kills him. Or at least it appears that he does. Look at verses 25 through 26. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. So, the father brings Jesus, his precious son. And Jesus makes things worse. Huh? He makes things worse. Now, granted, in our story here today, it only takes a few moments for us to see what Jesus is really up to. We see that either he was dead and Jesus wanted to resurrect him, or it just appeared that he was dead and then Jesus brought him to a renewed life when he picked him up by the hand. So it just takes a few moments for us to see what's going on. But in your life, in your life, it's probably not going to be that way. It may take you months or years, or you actually may never on this side of heaven discover what Jesus is up to in your suffering or the suffering of your children. You may not ever know what he's up to. But here's what I want you to think about today. There are a lot of people in our story, a lot of different groups of people in our story today. But let me ask you a question. Who are the people in our story today who are most likely to be confident that Jesus is not going to fail? Who are the people? I'll give you a hint. 
There's three of them. The three men who were least likely to believe Jesus has failed are Peter, James, and John. Why? Because they, just, just a few seconds ago, came off the mountain of glory. They saw the transfigured Christ. They heard the voice of the Almighty Father speak. They saw it, they felt it, they heard it. And so while everyone else is freaking out, not having any clue what's really going on or what Jesus is up to, these three should be sitting there going, just wait. Just wait. We don't know exactly what he's up to. But we do know for sure that this person cannot fail. We know that for sure. Maybe the boy is dead, but just wait. Just wait. For we have seen the glory. We have seen the power. And this person, Jesus, cannot fail. He is up to something. We don't know what, but we know for sure he's up to something. Why do you think in the, in the Old Testament that Moses almost begged God, he begged Yahweh to see his glory? Why do you think Moses was so adamant about seeing the glory of God? Well, you see, the word glory in the Bible literally means weight. It means weight. And every human on earth is glory starved. Every human is glory starved. We are all fighting a sense that our lives have no weight to them. They have no real meaning or purpose. They have no glory. And deep down, we're all scared to death that we are insignificant. That our lives really don't amount to much. We don't think our jobs or our families or our lives in general are really doing anything. And it scares us. And so we are constantly needing affirmation from others. We're needing encouragement. We're needing attaboys. We need lots of likes on social media. We need to know that our lives have weight. That there is something meaningful about our existence. And so we scratch and we claw and we fight for likes, for encouragement, for somebody to tell us that our lives mean something. 
So maybe we dive headfirst into our family. We say, well, maybe family will give me purpose. Or we dive headfirst into our education. Maybe we say, well, if I can get to this college or that college, then I'll have meaning. Or maybe we dive headfirst into our careers. We say, oh, if I could just be this person in this position, then my life will have meaning. And every single one of those roads is a dead end. Which is why we see the suicide rate rise among the wealthy. The wealthier you are, the higher the percentage that you will kill yourself is. It's because you work your whole life to get down this road, and when you arrive at the end, you realize... It's a dead end. It didn't actually get you what you wanted. It did not give you the weight that you thought it would. Now look, hear me. (laughs) Hear me. Having a family, building a career, going to a great college, having lots of friends is totally fine. I'm not saying don't do that. Do it. But here's what I'm saying. If you're assigning too much glory... If you, you yourself are giving those things too much weight in your life, it will crush you. It will crush you. If you give your spouse too much weight in your life, that is a burden they can't carry. And it will crush them and they will crush you in return. If you give too much weight to your job, it's the same thing. You can't give that that much weight to something that was never meant to carry it. And of course, when tragedy strikes and you're threatened to lose one of those things or you do indeed lose one of those things, you won't just get sad. You will become despondent. You will be filled with despair because you gave too much weight to things that were never meant to carry that kind of weight. But, but, there is someone whose shoulders are big enough to carry the weight. And he himself is the weightiest of all weighty things. If you give Jesus the seat of honor in your life, if you give him all of the glory and all of the weight, then when the storms come, you will not be moved. Because he will not be moved. If you build your life on the rock, then when the storms come, the house will hold. It will hold. And you will not only survive the suffering, but you will see suffering in a whole new light. You'll see suffering in a whole new light. When the storms come, you'll see that this storm is an opportunity for me to suffer with Christ. This is an opportunity for me to identify with Christ in his suffering. 
Also, you'll see that suffering makes you kinder. It makes you sweeter. It makes you stronger. And it makes you more humble. It makes you more humble. If you trust Jesus in your pain, your pain will become profoundly beautiful and helpful to you. It won't just be something you grit and bear. You won't just tie a knot at the end of your rope and hang on. You will see suffering for what it actually is, which is a gift. It's a gift from God. Now, there are those of you sitting here right now thinking, that's easier said than done. And I agree. It's much easier to preach this uh, than it is to actually do it. I mean, I, I get it. How can we actually do any of this? How can we actually approach God with humility, helpless humility, with nothing in our hands? I don't know about you, but most of the time, I approach God with something in my hands. I feel like I have a lot to offer. I have some input I'd like to give. God, before you answer, let me just tell you my thoughts on this. How can we come with nothing in our hands? And how can we truly trust Jesus when those storms are pounding on our roofs and threatening to wash us away? How can we truly trust Him? Well, that brings us to point number three in your outline. Here's how. Look to the mountain. Look to the mountain. What do I mean? Peter, James, and John are potentially the only three people in our story today that are super confident. And this terrible, horrifying situation. They're probably the only three who are confident. Why? As we said earlier, they have just seen Jesus' glory on the mountain. They've just seen it. So they may not know exactly what's going on, but like we said, we know, we know for sure that guy is not going to fail. He's not. But while the Mount of Transfiguration is great, that's one of the neatest stories in the New Testament. That's great. And there on that mountain, Jesus' glory shines bright. This is not the mountain you and I look to. No. You and I, you and I have a better mountain to look to, a much better mountain. One that gives us even more confidence than Peter, James, and John had in our story. You and I look to the mountain where Jesus' glory shines the brightest. And that mountain is Mount Calvary. In verse 26, this poor boy in our story, he looked like a corpse. Right? What does it say? 
The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. And maybe he was. We don't really know. But here's what we do know. We do know that at the end of Mark's gospel, Jesus, the King of glory, will become a corpse for you and for me. He won't just appear like a corpse. He will be one. And so we may walk around feeling too confident in our own abilities. We may want to approach God with something in our hands. But when we look to Mount Calvary, all our arrogance just melts away. It just melts away. We see at Mount Calvary that we are helpless and we are so wicked that it required the death of God's Son to save us. And when we see that, whatever we have in our hands becomes a lot easier to drop. It becomes a whole lot easier to say, Lord, I have nothing to offer. Also, we might struggle mightily to trust Jesus in our storms. It's so hard when there's a tornado bearing down on us or our family or our friends. It is so hard to trust Jesus, to trust that he's up to something. But when we look to Mount Calvary, and we see Jesus taking the ultimate storm on our behalf. Well, then we can't help but trust the plans of our crucified King. We see there at the foot of the cross that though we don't know what He's up to, we do know for certain that he loves us. For certain that he loves us. Because if he would do that for me, then I know he loves me. If he would endure the wrath of God in my place, then I know, I know he's up to something in my storm. Because I know that I know that I know that I know he loves me. In a poem by Horatius Bonner, he writes this. He says, terror accomplishes no real obedience. Suspense brings forth no fruit unto holiness. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct our crookedness of will. But the free pardon of the cross uproots sin and withers its branches. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, 
can do this. My friends, we have the certainty of God's love. And if you ever forget that, run. Run to Mount Calvary and behold the Lamb who was slain for you. Let us pray together.